All right, the foghorn. That means it's time for the Cavish Ships podcast, where we try and cut through the fog, the murk, and shine a little bit of light on naval and maritime issues of the day. I am Chris Cavus. And I'm Chris Cervello. Coming up, as the Arctic continues to warm, more and more the polar region is becoming navigable and open to shipping for longer periods. Russia is actively developing its 15,000-mile Arctic coastline with a major new port, powerful new icebreakers, and icebreaking merchant ships. The United States, by comparison, has only just over a thousand miles of Arctic coast. Is Russian polar development a threat? Should the United States send more military forces to the far north? We'll take a look. But first, a quick roundup of naval news around the world. The British nuclear-powered attack submarine HMS Astute arrived at Fleet Base West near Perth, Australia, October 29th, after operating with the Queen Elizabeth Carrier Strike Group. The visit is the first since the mid-September announcement of the AUKUS, Australia-UK-US, submarine cooperation deal. Meanwhile, in Rome on the same day, U.S. President Joe Biden met with French President Emmanuel Macron. Biden publicly admitted the AUKUS announcement, quote, was not done with a lot of grace, and that the U.S. was clumsy in the way it handled the rollout. Until the AUKUS announcement, Australia had a major deal with France to build non-nuclear submarines, but the Aussies provided the French with no warning ahead of the public unveiling of the AUKUS deal. India's new aircraft carrier Vikrant was back at sea October 24th for a second round of sea trials. Known as the indigenous aircraft carrier, India's first home-built carrier has been under construction since 2009. The U.S. aircraft carrier Carl Vincent is back operating in the South China Sea after carrying out a series of exercises in the Bay of Bengal with Indian, British, Australian, and Japanese warships. Vincent, with Carrier Air Wing 2, is the first carrier to deploy with the F-35C Joint Strike Fighter and new CMV-22B Osprey Tilt Rotor Aircraft in the carrier onboard delivery role. In the Mediterranean, U.S. Sixth Fleet flagship Mount Whitney left her home port of Gaeta, Italy, October 29th, embarking Sixth Fleet and NATO staff for a series of exercises in the Mediterranean and Black Seas. The Spain-based U.S. destroyer USS Porter entered the Black Sea October 30th on what the U.S. Navy called a routine patrol. U.S. ships have operated in the Inland Sea on several occasions in 2021, the last being in July. In the States, the amphibious transport dock Fort Lauderdale completed a week of sea trials October 26th at Engels Shipbuilding in Pascagoula, Mississippi. The ship is the first Flight 1 Plus variant of the LPD-17 San Antonio class, the most visible difference being the absence of the large composite structure and closed masts of the first 10 ships. The follow-on Flight 2 ships will be similar. British supply ships Fort Rosalie and Fort Austin are being sold to Egypt, the UK Ministry of Defense said October 29th. The ships, built in the 1970s, will be refurbished in Britain before being handed over. These still very capable ships will mark a major blue water capability upgrade for Egypt, which operates a relatively modern, large, and growing navy, although one with ships from a variety of nations and suppliers. On the historic ships front, the Battleship Texas Foundation announced October 27th their choice of Gulf Copper and Manufacturing Corporation in Galveston to carry out the ship's $35 million state-supported dry docking overhaul. The entire overhaul is meant to restore the hull and structure of the ship launched in 1912. Retired in 1948, 
the world's oldest dreadnought has been birthed at the San Jacinto Battleground State Historic Site near Houston since then, but is now actively searching for a new home in Texas. While Galveston and Beaumont are in the mix, no new site has been chosen. And that's a look at Naval News this week. All right. It is that time of the podcast where we have our freeform discussion. Um, this week, it's a little bit different, uh, Chris. Uh, instead of having something that's in the news drive our discussion, um, it's actually a discussion that is going to drive our discussion. You, know, you and I were going back and forth throughout the week. You are working on a freelance piece on U.S. government and DOD operations in the Arctic. Um, and it got us talking about what the U.S. government um, has and is doing right, some of the shortcomings of the strategic writing that has, uh, has been put out over the years on uh, Arctic strategies. Um, I, I said to you, I, I uh, don't think it's much, we've had much of a strategy um, going back to when Ray Mavis was the Secretary of the Navy. Um, the Department of Defense uh, in September um, identified their Arctic point person, kind of came and went. So, um, you know, I thought if we spent 15 or so minutes kind of talking about where we are, um, it may lead us to a spot where we can have future guests and expand on that. Well, I hope so. We'll, we'll, we'll see. The Arctic is something that everybody's aware of it. <clears throat> a lot of people talk about it. But is anybody actually doing anything about it? And what should they be doing? Excellent question. And there's a, I mean, the most, the most common theme you get when you talk to people about it is just how incredibly complex the whole situation is. And of course, the situation is global warming is leading to the uh, melting of the ice caps. Um, the Arctic is becoming more navigable more for more time every year, longer seasons. And more of the Arctic is beginning to open up. So all across the Arctic, uh, the Arctic Ocean itself, which has normally been pretty darn white, is now becoming dark blue in many places. And that opens up a whole new set of issues that deal with you know, the use of the water, waters, navigation, fishery, all, all this stuff. And it's, it's very complex. And it's, it's an evolving situation. People don't know where it's going. Um, you know, how far has it gone already? Um, where is this going to all end? Whatever. Um, so there's, there's a ton of misinformation. There's, but there's also, there is a great deal of activity, but it's not necessarily military activity. Um, and there's a lot of, you know, people hear about what the Russians are doing and want to ask, well, why aren't we doing that? And one reason is, well, they live there. Um, we don't. We have the North Shore, the North Arctic coast of Alaska, which has a place called Barrow and very little else um, in terms of settlements. And their large, longest coastline by far is, um, is, is, is on the Arctic Ocean. It stretches from the border with Norway all the way across to Alaska. Um, I can see Alaska from my house. And that's, <laughs> so from your Russia house... From I'm sorry, right. I see Russia from my house. And so, you know, from your house in Alaska to Norway is their coast. Um, right. That's that's a that's a lot. So you hear these things every year in Congress. You know, the Congress folks will say, I, Admiral, I, the Russians have, I'm told the Russians have 40 icebreakers. We only have one. Why is that? And they all kind of fumble with, with the answer and don't give them a direct response. The answer is they live there. And they do stuff there, and it's a lot longer 
um, much longer coastline, and that it's it's of far more importance than than for us. So it's um it's you know a matter of proportion is um is is is, is sort of lost. Now the Russians are opening up. Um, this is far more important for them than anybody else, really, because it gives them more access to what is a huge part of their country, um, as well as an improved access, you know, from the Norwegian Sea to the Bering Sea. And that's important for their Navy in terms of transit. Their biggest naval bases by far is the Northern Fleet and the Kola Inlet, Murmansk, Archangel, which is all pretty up, you know, near Norway. And it's a long way to Vladivostok on the Pacific, in the Pacific, where the Pacific fleet is. Normally, to go from one to the other, they have to go all the way around through the Suez Canal and under under India, and then up um, up past China, and then into Vladivostok. And that's a long way. Um, but they are they're re in reinvigorating, reopening some of their Cold War bases that are up there. Um, but again, and, and they're, and they're building new ice breaking ships and ice breaking cable ships and some patrol naval patrol ships that are icebreakers. Um, and you know, there's, there's a, there's an element in the U S that says, well, we should build them too. Why aren't we doing that? Um, well, again, what would be the point of us building them? It's not entirely clear that, that that's a perfectly, that that's a good investment, particularly when we have, I don't know anything else to be doing that we everybody complains we don't have enough money enough assets to do um it's not by any means clear that these are offensive moves that the russians are making um and one might expect if they're um making investments and improving infrastructure that they would want to simply protect and defend them it doesn't mean they're going to attack anybody um it just doesn't so it's just uh it, it is a it is a difficult issue to present and to consider from a military point of view. I find it interesting. You know, the Army put out in uh, in March of 2021 their Arctic strategy. The Navy has put out several Arctic strategies. In, in fact, the Navy and Marine Corps' last uh, Arctic strategy was in uh, January of 2021. And, and what, I, what did you get out of that? I, I didn't get anything out of it. I mean, that's, I mean, I get that the Arctic is an important place to be, I, but I mean, that, that is to say that every waterway in the world is an important place to be right. I mean, for the Navy. Okay. I'll, I'll buy that. Um, but to your point that you just made about making choices and where to be and where to spend money, it really makes you think number one, number two is not as simple as just sailing a DDG up to the Arctic, right? I mean, the, the ships that we have would require um, different outfitting um, to go yeah. up and, and operate regularly in, in it, the Arctic. It would require to be different ships. Right. <laughs> it's just, they can't, they don't even, you know, they don't have steam heat anymore. Right. All right. I mean, it, it's, it, you get down to that simple piece of engineering where I need to heat my ship in this perpetually 60 below environment. Yeah. And it doesn't work. Um, I don't have, I have gas turbines. They don't do that. I have diesels. They don't do that. With a steam plant, it was a pretty simple proposition. That, 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 that's actually a, a pretty serious consideration. 
Yeah, I was just looking at, um, there was a War on the Rocks piece uh, put out in January of 21 as well um, that talked about focusing the military services Arctic strategies. And the opening paragraph is actually pretty good. It, it says, there's no public Air Force Middle East strategy. There's no high profile Latin American strategy from the army, no Navy Africa strategy. And he asked, so why are there all these Arctic strategies? Right. Um, and it, I think it's a fair, it's a fair point, right? I mean, are we are we chasing the next shiny object in the Arctic? That question to me doesn't, at least in, in my mind, it doesn't presuppose the answer. I'm not saying that we shouldn't be in the Arctic and I'm not saying that we shouldn't be thinking about going to the Arctic, but I think that as you consider Arctic operations and as you consider increasing your presence in the Arctic, I think you need to do it while considering where else you want your naval forces to be, the size of the Navy that you're going to have, the types of ships, the, the cost. And I, I think, you know, that holistic view is very important. You and I were talking about, um, I went, when I was in 04, I accompanied uh, a flag officer that I was working for, went up to uh, ISEX. Um, you know, we fly, you flew to Alaska, you get on this little ice plane, you fly out to, um, you know, a sheet of ice. The the where every, every other year they get two right. or three submarines, they go up, they surface through the ice, they set up a bunch of tents, they have fly a bunch of scientists up there, and then an endless parade of VIPs come Right. <laughs> there were more VIPs than their polar bears up there, Chris. I mean, you know, and so they, you know, the science is very important. Uh, there's folks from ONR and other uh, scientific, uh, you know, labs uh, that are doing work and the submarine busts through the ice. And if you're a VVIP, you get to get on the submarine and go back through the ice and operate. And, um, but I mean, that's kind of, that's kind of it. I mean, this will be the obvious statement of the podcast. It's cold up there, right? And it's hard to operate. Um, it's hard to communicate. It's hard to communicate if you're a ship. Right. It's hard to communicate right. if you're individuals. As we consider whether it's icebreakers, as we consider whether it's you know deploying more ships up there, having a beyond just a you know a folio that uh, you th you send over to the hill or makes the White House feel good about your thinking on it. I, I think we really need to have um, a serious, uh, thought-provoking discussion about what we would want to do up there what it would take to operate up there. And then again, how that fits into wherever else we're operating. I talked to one, um, one guy, uh, Lawson Brigham, who was a retired Air, uh, Coast Guard captain. Uh, he served on six cutters, four icebreakers, commanded to um, sailed to the North Pole, sailed uh, off on, on the Ross ice shelf as close as you can get to the South Pole. To, to the ends of the earth. Um, pretty darn good maritime Arctic, Antarctic ice chops. Um, now he's become one of the premier Arctic authorities um, in the country. He's based, based in Alaska. His point of view was there's, there's no need for any Navy up there. Um, so we have, we, have, we have submarines that nobody can beat. So if anybody's doing anything up there we don't like, we can sink them. What, what would a ship do? Uh, it would just frankly get stuck. Um, he, he, he sees no particular role for the surface Navy up there. Um, as a coasty guy and as an icebreaker guy, he's happy they're building the polar security cutters. Um, on the other hand, people have been lip flapping about we need more icebreakers in the U.S. for 20 years. And there, yes, there's now money into it. There's over actually over a, a billion 
put into it so far. There's only one ship that's been ordered and construction has yet to begin. This is the first of maybe three large uh, polar security cutters, which are big icebreakers that are armed. Um, they'll be very sophisticated ships designed by in, in Germany, um, but very sophisticated, uh, built at a yard VT halter in Pascagoula, Mississippi. By far, it'll be the most um, sophisticated ship they have ever built. Um, but that's it. They might we might build three three smaller medium cutters for a total of six that may might be operational by maybe the mid 30s 2030s so it's not like you know there's a lot going on here the the thing is the the service that does the most by far it's not the marines not the army it is the air force so the air force 80 percent of the pentagon money that is spent is spent on the air force by far and that's been the service that's been there in 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 and out all along. I mean, they've been up there since the earliest days of the Cold War, right after World War II, when things reorganized and everybody saw the the Soviets as our next great threat. Um, they were up there right away with bases. They ran NORAD, the North America uh, uh, North American Air Defense Command and System. They ran all the radars up there. Um, and they have had bombers and fighters up there flying in all kinds of weather, all hours of the day, uh, ever since the late 50s. And they've never really totally slacked off yet. Yeah, there was a drop down at the end of the Cold War, but it never went away. And the, it's, when you're talking active in the Arctic on a level that is equal to, say, the Russians, uh, it's it's the Air Force, and only the Air Force can match that. I mean, our Navy, give me a break. I mean, the Russians operate up there because, again, that's where they live. Their largest base is north of the Arctic Circle. So they are at home operating in extremely severe weather conditions, and they do. They don't, they don't shut down in December and January. They actually operate all through, all winter long. Um, we have started, we, the U.S. Navy, started trying to do um, north of the Arctic Circle ops, and they've not all gone very well. Um, they're getting better, but um, they've started in fairly benign times of the year, August, September, um, and they've had problems. They've had issues. So there's a, every every time they go, they relearn things that they've forgotten, and they forgot they forgot. And it's, uh, these are kind of baby steps, but again, nothing at all like the Russians and frankly, not, nothing like the, the great, you know, the, at the height of the cold war in the eighties. And when we were, we did these Northern wedding exercises where the, the Soviets were had, had their, uh, their, their boomer subs or ballistic missile submarines were in these bastions under the ice cap, uh, figuring we couldn't find them. And they designed their, uh, attack submarines to ring the the bastions uh, and defend the ballistic missile submarines and we were going to counter this with a our own submarines and also with carrier strike forces carrier strike groups were going to go up there in what was probably going to be a one-way trip but attack these bastions that were a direct threat to the, to the to the u.s homeland and we were operating there fairly frequently and that's actually kind of how the 
some aspects of the early Burke design came about because people were operating in are in ships that are designed for much warmer weathers. And, you know, those, the Soviets would send out some Krivak frigate um, to watch them. And, you know, relatively speaking, this little, you know, rel- you know, small ship, uh, but wide beamy, um, a lot of flare on the hull. Uh, and they would take these seas like nothing. And they're, of course, eyeball to eyeball. And our ships are just rolling and covered in, in the green water and ice pouring everywhere. And they're fairly dry. And they're just, frankly, laughing at us. And we're going, dang, you know, we need, we need ships that look like that. So that's one reason why the early, the early Burke hull is, a, is quite different than the Spruance Ticonderoga hull that preceded them was that that sort of experience where they had to learn with, about Arctic operations and design for that. So um, it's easy to forget these lessons. They're very, none, none of these things stay. And that's one of the problems is that if you don't do it all the time, you probably don't want to, you're, you're probably an amateur and you don't, you don't want to get up there and be in the face of real professionals and people who are truly at home in it. Air Force is doing bigger things up there. They just moved a squadron of uh, F-35s up into Joint Base uh, Elmendorf-Richardson, J-Bear. A lot of infrastructure that they had to put up there to support those, those uh, aircraft. Uh, they're the ones really, really doing it right now. So right now, not a whole lot happening everywhere else in terms of the military other than the Air Force. Yeah, I mean, the last time the Navy really beat this drum was at the August Sea, Air, and Space Conference, uh, where the Second Fleet Commander, uh, you know, spoke about the um, the Navy's strategy that was released in January. You know, repeated a familiar line, uh, saying that peace and prosperity in the Arctic required enhanced naval presence and partnerships. Also, saying that that unless you know those partnerships and presence were were up there. Um, that you know the Arctic was the next would be the next place to be contested, um, and I guess again I'll, I'll finish where I started. I, I'm just not sure that's the case. Um, I, I think there's lots of places in the world that are contested, both from a commercial and from a uh, military standpoint. And there's lots of places that the Navy and our partner navies need to be. And so I I just don't I think you have to have these conversations holistically rather than in in silos. Um, right. if, if you're going to be taken serious, both at home and abroad. And that, that, that's really the one takeaway. There's, there's a ton of stuff we did not talk about and you cannot cover it. You're not going to cover it in an hour and we're not going to cover it in three hours. It's incredibly complex. There's so many layers to this. We didn't start to talk about the Chinese and how they're trying to insinuate themselves into it. I mean, even the Russians are looking at them going like, really, seriously, um, you're not an Arctic nation. And by the way, the eight Arctic nations, the, um, do get along fairly well. And there's an awful lot of cooperation going on, surprisingly enough, including with the Russian development uh, along, along their Arctic coastline. It's ex- exceptionally international. Uh, a lot of international investment up there. Uh, it's by no means um, just, just a, a one-off Russian thing. But that, but that really is the lesson. It's very complex. And if anybody wants to boil it down to something really simple, they probably, probably don't really know what they're talking about. Now hear this. Now hear this. That's right, folks. It's time for Squawk Box. And this week, Mr. Savello has some thoughts. Is the Navy getting ready for battle, or is it just fighting the battle of the budget? Chris, whether it's learning from the collisions of 2017, the events of the Bonham Richard fire, or deciding how we intend to compete against China and Russia, a critical learning point is clear. 
you get the Navy you pay for. And the easiest way to measure that hypothesis is to look at the current balancing of resourcing to operations. Earlier this week, friend of the pod, Commander Salamander, in a USNI blog, referenced the 2015 U.S. Army War College piece, Lying to Ourselves, Dishonesty in the Army Profession. Drawing on the same rubric and lessons learned in the Army case study, Sal argued that in fitness reports, CAS reps, and other professional dealings, the Navy has lost its ability to be candid and honest with itself, with its chain of command, and perhaps even at the individual sailor level. Look, this doesn't happen overnight, and it does not happen by accident. In my experiences, this phenomenon is a direct result of the resourcing and operations equation being out of balance. This imbalance drives unreasonable expectations and misplaced accountability on the wrong people in the chain of command. It drives dishonesty, mistakes, and takes a toll on the culture and morale of the organization. My fear is that unless we get the resourcing, maintenance, and operations variables right, the high-profile anomalies in seamanship, import watch standing, and maintenance practices that we've read about over the last couple of years will become the norm of our naval culture and not the exception. Look, despite my rants and complaints on this podcast, I believe we have a very good Navy, one with technological superiority and a talented workforce. The challenge ahead is making the right choices in funding, employment, and culture to maintain that advantage. Okay, well, that does it for this week. And as always, our thanks go out to Vaga Moradian for his support, as well as to the Fincantieri Marine Group and Huntington Ingalls Industries for their continued support of the defense and aerospace effort. Be sure to follow us at Cavish Ships on Twitter. And remember, this podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I'm Chris Cervello. And I'm Chris Cavish. Thanks for listening, and bye-bye. <laughs>